Welcome to Out of the Box Radio with me, your host, Christine Blasdale. Out of the Box Radio is a weekly podcast of audible ear candy dedicated to bringing a fresh perspective on this thing that we call life. And each and every week, we're going to be diving into the topics that matter most with lively conversations on issues such as health, wellness, and transformational healing, all with the goal of creating a better world and becoming a happier human being. I will be your tour guide for this epic adventure, and each and every week we're going to be embarking on a journey with the ultimate goal being transformation to our highest potential. And now, let's get out of the box. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Out of the Box with Christine. I am your host, Christine Blasdale, and I am really happy that you tuned in today. We have an exciting program for you. My guest today is Donald Jeffries, and Donald started out investigating the JFK assassination as a teenager, and he was a volunteer with Mark Lane's Citizens Committee of Inquiry in the mid-1970s. Since then, his life has just taken a whole <laughs> new direction, and not only has he been following up on the JFK assassination, but also that of uh, John F. Kennedy Jr. And we're going to be talking about that because it's the 20-year anniversary of the death of uh, John F. Kennedy Jr. And not much has been talked about. We're going to talk about that in the show. But we're also going to talk about some other things that have happened in history that uh, Donald and myself have question marks around. So I just want to welcome to the program. We've got a lot to cover, Donald. Uh, I want to welcome Donald Jeffries to Out of the Box with Christine. Well, thanks. thanks for having me, Christine. Well, I had just tapped in there in the beginning about the, the, the work that you've done investigating the JFK assassination, John F. Kennedy, our, our president. And if you don't mind, let's go back, let's go back to that time in your life in the mid seventies, or maybe even earlier when this whole thing happened, did you know immediately that something was off about his assassination or was that several years later? Well, I was seven when he was assassinated, but yeah, I pretty much perceived <laughs> see things a little uh, clearer than the mainstream media did at the time. They weren't questioning it, but yeah, even as a seven-year-old, I kind of, um, I was from a Catholic family and uh, we were all proud. Like, you know, I, I kind of experienced that pride from my large family that, you know, took to Kennedy as this is something personal with him. He was the first Catholic president. So they were even more distraught, I guess, than maybe non-Catholic families were after he was killed. So, you know, I, one of the first, my first memories is watching that saturation coverage on television as a little kid and uh, the, the funeral and all that. I mean, it had a huge impact on me. And then Oswald getting shot and, you know, instantly the doubts that came up everyone around me. And uh, so I certainly never believed Oswald did it. I thought, you know, I figured, well, he was silenced for some reason, but I was, I was only seven. So right, I, had, right. I had about the sophistication level of an average mainstream journalist at seven. You know, I, could, I couldn't, uh, you know, figure it out any better than that. But once I got to be a teenager and uh, <clears throat> became politically aware after Watergate, I mean, I, was a, I started out as a, a, a very a left-wing Democrat that kept going left or, you know, far left, uh, radical Democrat. And uh, so, you know, I, later on, I became an independent when my eyes were opened a little bit to the left-right paradigm. But I started out that way. And, of course, I loved Kennedy. I started reading the books on, that were, had already been out. I mean, I was too young to read Rust and Judgment and all that when it first came out. But uh, I started reading the books that came out in the early to mid-'70s, when uh, right before the House Select Committee on Assassinations uh, was able to uh, reopen it and 
do pretty terrible job to disillusion us, but they did conclude at the last minute uh, that it was probably the result of a conspiracy. Most people tend to forget that, but uh, my group that I was with, Mark Lane's group, we lobbied Congress and, and tried to talk to the media, and it was, it was my first, uh, you know, experience, realized, because I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to be like Woodward and Bernstein, and I, I didn't understand that the media didn't operate the way it normally, it doesn't normally operate the way it did during Watergate. They normally do no investigating. And uh, once I realized they weren't interested in who killed JFK or RFK or MLK, I said, wow, that, that really opened my eyes. And uh, so I kind of began to drift towards political extremism. And uh, the rest is history, where I pretty much question everything. And uh, that would later, of course, include the death of his son, JFK Jr., whose career I kind of followed. Uh, but I had no idea until I investigated and after he died that he uh, actually behind the scenes had a quest to find out who killed his father. And I, I don't think anybody knew that. And I certainly didn't know it until I talked to a couple people in his inner circle that requested uh, to remain anonymous, very strongly requested to remain anonymous. And uh, what's interesting about that is you realize how, how the lies that you see in the mainstream media recently, Fox News last month which was the month, uh, 20th anniversary in July of 1999 is when he died, uh, ran an article from a so-called close friend of his. And it was headlined, you know, close pal of JFK Jr.'s said he couldn't understand why people were interested in his father's assassination. And oh, he, would, he right. was the one, it was the, it was the one subject they could, that you didn't discuss. Now I know personally from talking to people that knew him, that that's just 180 degrees, uh, uh, you know, opposite of the truth. And this close pal just happens to be the resident historian at the History Channel. It oh. suits him well. <laughs> so and with that attitude and that, that ability to lie and completely yeah. distort the truth, whether he knew Kennedy or not, I don't know. But uh, he certainly is lying about that. And so that's the kind of stuff that uh, when you kind of know things a little bit personally, when you watch those stories appear, and it's, it's very frustrating because you can't do anything about it. You can't contradict them. And, you know, I'm, luckily I have podcasts and radio shows like this where I can come on, but I don't have Fox News or, you know, CNN that I can go on and rebut the lies they tell to a lot a bigger audience. Well, and as we know, with the JFK, with his father's assassination, and I will, you know, we'll also go on record saying with also his assassination and MLK and, uh, and Bobby Kennedy as well, um, the... It's, it's almost as if the media is placed there to stop people from uh, using their analytical mind, using their, 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 their critical thinking processes, saying, this is a little bit too much of a coincidence. This doesn't make sense. Um, and just to put people to sleep again and to say, don't, don't, don't you know, pay no attention. But the, the, with JFK, with his father's assassination, I also feel that that was quite a because they could have killed him any other way. They could have killed him silent, you know, when he was in his hotel room or something. But that was a very public uh, yeah. mass psyops, I believe. And the idea being that if we can take out this person, who's the most powerful man in the world, presumably, you know, we can do anything. Um, and I think that's what we all kind of came into. You were seven years old. That had a huge impact on you and probably millions of other people as well. Some who didn't buy the story and then others who I think were frightened off from even approaching it because it was so overwhelming to the mass psyche. I don't know if that's something that you, you, uh, yep. you relate to as well. 
Yeah, well, psychologically speaking, the the way he was assassinated, his head blown off in broad daylight, uh, like that on a you know bright sunny day, uh, right before Thanksgiving. I mean, you know, a lot of this uh, you know played it, in, into the American psyche, and I think that it really it's it's cliche to say that that's when America's innocence ended, but I really think it, it did in in many ways because the idealism that JFK had within you know people that were older than me, the young people that were in the Peace Corps and things like that, that was kind of the height of idealism. You know when when you know when you're ready to run off to the Peace Corps and go help people. That was kind of what JFK was bringing. But when he was killed, and I think no one really looks at the psychological effect that it had going from this elegant movie star looking guy who was a wonderful speaker and we still listen to his speeches and revel at him just the way he had the phrasing things with his Boston cadence. And again, the great looks, you can't ever downplay that. That, that always helps. But to go from that to Lyndon Johnson, who is this big, crude, you know, kind of inarticulate, uh, you know, almost to, to the level of Trump and uh, George W. Bush. I mean, he, he, he was not a great speaker and he was so, he couldn't hide his insincerity. And I think that's the first thing that watching the coverage at the time, his speech at the uh, airport when he got off, when JFK's body came back to Andrews Air Force Base, if you look at that speech, it's the most awkward thing. You know, we have suffered a great loss. I, you know, I have suffered a great personal. He sounds so insincere. Exactly. I don't think anyone believed him. And you, you could just tell. And I, most people don't know. And uh, actually, my first doubts about the JFK assassination came from before I really even knew much about the minutia of the assassination, other than just kind of knowing Oswald didn't do it. But I read the book called Johnny, We Hardly Knew You which was a, a New York Times bestseller. I, was, I read it when I was probably 15 or 16 years old because I was already a Kennedy junkie, really, without being in, into his assassination. I just kind of loved the Kennedy family, and I was just intrigued by it. And uh, it was a memoir written by Kenneth O'Donnell and Dave Powers, two of his closest aides. And what I got out of that, when they described the assassination, they kind of vaguely expressed doubts. They weren't very open about it, but clearly you could tell they didn't necessarily trust the official version, but they describe what happened behind the scenes and Lyndon Johnson's behavior and how much it, you know, how offended they were by it and as, as, and how he would just come along and he had the same line to each one of them. I need you now more than he did. You know, he obviously had this political line of use on every one of JFK's allies. And that's where the feud between LBJ and Bobby Kennedy really started because he was, Bobby Kennedy was so offended by the way he acted, especially when he lied to everyone, because he wanted to take off on Air Force One and he commandeered it. He could have ridden on Air Force Two, which was a, a, a identical aircraft, but he demanded to go on Air Force One and demanded to have the oath of office administered before they led, uh, left Dallas. And he even dragged Jackie out I, who was in, with the blood still on her dress and yeah. made her stand next to him. And Bobby Kennedy was offended by that because he told everyone that he had talked to Bobby, and Bobby said he needed to take the oath of office before he left Dallas. He said, I, and I never said that. They were, things were never – I mean, he, I don't think he liked uh, LBJ even before that, but he really began to despise him after that, and the, the, that's when the personal feud really intensified. But, of course, LBJ was looking over his shoulder all the time and realized, you know, knew Bobby Kennedy wanted to go to the YSL House. And, of course, in, in 68, after LBJ kind of curiously decided not to run – we know what happened then. And I've always said about RFK, if, if JFK hadn't been assassinated, RFK would never have been assassinated. Right. They're connected. No. And, and anybody who looks into Bobby's um, assassination, there's 
so many um I, I, just like with uh with john there's there's just too many similarities in respect to um strange folks uh also i think it was the uh, was it william pepper who was the attorney who was representing sirhan sirhan um it was saying that it was all the indications of uh, whatever a Manchurian candidate or someone who had been yeah. placed to be there at that time. And there's all these other characters, the lady in the polka dot dress and all these, <laughs> these other characters that they can't explain. Oh, I don't Certainly. know. I don't know. And you know, these things are, we have, when you, when you study politics as long as I have, uh, you, the, the connections are everywhere. Even if you just limit it to the assassinations, I mean, I'd go way beyond that. And we're talking about 9-11 and Waco and everything. I, I, I investigate everything and I question everything. And I think basically we've been lied to about every important event in this country's yes. history. Because <laughs> <Yes. laughs> we, we, we don't have a free press. We have a state-controlled media. The only difference between our media and CAS and Pravda and the Soviet Union is that the, Soviet U, the citizens were smart enough to realize that this was state-controlled media. A, a majority of Americans still think when they turn on CNN and Fox News, that they're watching free and independent journalists, and you know, to, to believe that, of course, is you know, is 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 laughable. But when you when you look at these connections, I recently wrote an article, and I, I wrote for I write for um, the American Free Press, which is a populist weekly in D.C. Here, and uh, they I wrote an article about RFK, the assassination, and the reason I wrote it is because I was focusing on Kamala Harris. Who's you know was the, at the moment was a darling candidate of the Democrats, yes. and I knew of her history. I mean, people that study these assassinations know about these things that the general public doesn't know. As Attorney General of California, she was disastrous to William Pepper and and his legal team trying to get Sirhan Sirhan a new trial. And I've got her quotes from the article, and it was such a powerful article, I guess, that I heard from a former CNN producer, Brad Johnson, who wrote a book on the RFK assassination, and I also heard from Paul Schrade who was one of the people who was shot in the Ambassador Hotel. He's 90-some years old now, still going strong. But they both read the article and uh, loved the fact that I exposed the fact that Kamala Harris was, you know, this, this is what happens. These people, and most of the public don't understand that when you're electing these, these people, they have a history. And somebody like Kamala Harris has shown that, and I'm not just picking on her because there are lots of other people like her, but you know, when you do something like that and you make the statement she made, she basically made the statement that even if there was evidence of a second gunman, it wouldn't matter uh, as, as far as Sirhan's guilt. And she had no interest in that. That's like, okay, that, that wouldn't matter. Huh? So, but so that's, that's where, we, where we sit with these kind of politicians we have. Well, you know, you've studied um, enough the political, and you're there on the on the East Coast too, very close to the uh, capital. That um, politics, man, it's a crazy. I can smell the swamp every day. From it's here. a crazy, <laughs> and it doesn't matter if they're wearing a red coat or a blue coat or a green coat. Or <laughs> it just seems that when you get into politics, when you throw your hat in that ring, that you literally sell your soul. Um, uh, for some other um, a group or goal, I, I I don't pretend to know what the goal is. If it's to control all of us, if it's power, if it's yeah. money, if it's I I don't really completely understand it. I just know that really good people who have the ability to affect change are somehow crazily just taken out. They either have a plane crash or they're killed or they're suicide with a thing that they can't even you know reach. Right. Um, it's, it's just, uh, it, it's too much. It's too many coincidences. 
to just think that this is just what happens. Um, let's let's go back because we we had mentioned earlier too that this is uh, the twenty year anniversary of uh, the death of John F. Kennedy Jr. Let's talk about bef- what ha- what was going on before um, July 16th, 1999 with him. He had a very popular um, magazine. I know it was, uh, I think it was George. George Magazine. Yeah. George Magazine. Extremely um, um, popular. He, uh, from my understanding, and I could be wrong, I had heard rumors that he was looking into possibly running in New York uh, to running for, for, for Senate, right? Yeah, well, that's uh, that has been the story that people were saying he was about to enter. Now, people don't realize, even though he'd been in the public eye for so long, he was only 39 years old. Actually, yeah. 30 was he 30? Uh, not quite 39. I think he was 38 because uh, I think he was born in November, right after JFK was uh, elected. So he was very young still, and but and he had been pressured into, and I don't think his mother really wanted him to enter politics, but she was gone and. Uh, I think he was ready. And again, with the people I talked to behind the scenes, this was something he was keenly interested in. Other things I didn't realize that he was, he showed up at one of the White House correspondence dinner, for instance, with his special guest was Larry Flint, who not only was a publisher of Hustler magazine, who had published the naked photos of his mother, and this horrified his uncle Ted, that he would show up with this guy. But I, I don't think he was interested because of that. Larry Flint had offered, also notably offered a million dollar reward for the real murders of John F. Kennedy. Yes. That's why JFK Jr. was with him. And, he, and also he was with Ruth Carter Stapleton, Jimmy Carter's sister, who unlike Jimmy Carter, who never really talked much about the assassination, Ruth Carter Stapleton was very active in trying to expose the truth about the JFK assassination. Most people don't know that. So at the, and this time, and I, talked, I emailed and talked, uh, spoke with Wayne Madsen, another investigative journalist, Mm-hmm. Who was who was said he was set to meet with JFK Jr. the week after he had unfortunately died to talk about being hired by George Magazine as an investigative reporter and his first assignment was going to be the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, if he was also interested in in running and if he was to be running in New York, who would you say? Donald Jeffries, <laughs> would he be running against, and uh, who who would be, be be competing against for to be New York senator? Who are the large body count behind her? Uh, yeah, yeah, and that's the thing, you know. I mean, people have accused uh, John Hankey, for instance, who put out a very good video about the assassination of JFK Jr. I think that's what he called it. Uh, he tends to like blame Bush personally. Other people blame Hillary Clinton personally because. You know, let's face it, she does have a slew. Her and Bill have quite a, a list of dead bodies behind them. And, but uh, that's the rumor that he was going to use the, the, the New York Senate as a springboard to the presidency. Now, you know, can we know that for certain? I don't know. But uh, there, there, there are lots of indications. And in my book, Hidden History, as you know, you had the chapter from that on JFK Jr. And that was really the first time anybody had published a lot of this information in any kind of uh, book that uh, had any kind of circulation. Uh, had online articles and so forth, but I mean, I interviewed people that were in the media that were there at the scene and uh, talked to some of these people and, and, and I think demonstrated uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt that the official narrative uh, there is completely wrong. JFK Jr. is portrayed, was uh, reckless and the typical daredevil Kennedy shouldn't have been flying, wasn't qualified. All that's completely bogus. 
And uh, one of the things I think is most impressive was uh, Edward Meyer, who wrote the official FFA, FAA weather report. He was tasked by the FFA to write the weather report on conditions, weather conditions the night uh, that JFK's plane went down. And he was so mad at the press coverage. And I have the quote from the email he sent me years later when I asked him for an update. He's still incensed about it. He said everything the media reported was, was wrong. That it was not even hazy that night. The weather conditions were pretty good. JFK was not irresponsible, and he was qualified. All his, I, I quote from one of his flight instructors. So the guy was a good and careful pilot. This is a flight he had made. So, but because of the media, again, because we don't have real journalists in this country. Now, fortunately, I was able to, uh, I emailed uh, one of the good journalists we have, Steve Bracca, who was, um, covered uh, things live for WCVP-TV uh, out of Massachusetts. And I was fortunate to get a, a researcher, JFK assassination researcher, Scott Meyer, sent me uh, four hours of uh, unedited, original, live coverage of the search for JFK's plane from WCVP-TV. So that's the only reason I know how extensive this stuff was that was later edited out. I mean, there, was co there were constant references to a 9.39 p.m. phone call from JFK Jr. Now, we're, that's important because 9.39 p.m. is the exact moment we're told, according to the official story, that his plane took a death spiral into the water. And at that 9.39 p.m. phone call, which UPI reported, ABC News reported, and I quote from the, you know, the dispatches in there, and, and this local news coverage mentioned it over and over again, the 9.39 p.m. phone call in which JFK Jr. said everything was fine, sounded very calm, and was awaiting landing instructions. And the Coast Guard even sent a, a petty officer, Todd Bergen, to do an interview with a reporter on Sunday. And I have the interview on the tape, WCVB-TV. Uh, Susan Warnick is the reporter that did that interview. And later I tried to email her, and I emailed her three or four times. She never replied. And because I, I said, you know, what do you think about this guy giving an interview? And the interview was about the 9.39 p.m. phone call. Now, later, of course, when, they, when the uh, military took over, uh, within a day or two, uh, they claimed that there was no communication. So that 9.39 p.m. phone call went down the memory hole. So what is the, so the Coast Guard, I wanted to ask that reporter, what did you think of the Coast Guard sending out someone to talk about an, a, com, a, a conversation that never happened? Does that sound feasible to anyone? But this is the kind of, these are the kind of lies that were sold and the Susan Warnicks of the world, and I'm not picking on her, but she obviously doesn't have the courage of her convictions. And I've, I've Talk, to communicate with other reporters about other subjects that, are, again, are gutless. They don't question these things. There are no Lois Lanes in these new newsrooms. They're not inquisitive about anything. And even when they're personally involved, that was me or you. I would hope if you talked to someone and then the government tried to tell you the, the subject of your interview, what you talked to them about, never happened, I would be really, really curious upset, and I would hope my uh, superiors would back me, but that's not the way our state-controlled media works. Well, and then and there's also that, that fear aspect where, uh, yeah, the, the Lois Lanes and the Clark Kents <laughs> seem to kind of dissolve because there's that implication, like, again, if, you, if they can do this, because they know, sure. you know, they, they, they know. Sure. Now, there's also, uh, you, you write about... Um, uh, in the chapter on the death of John F. Kennedy Jr., um, that uh, John his his plane had a black box, correct? Yes. yes. Did the they? Battery was, the battery was the battery was missing. Conveniently, the battery had been removed. 
It's like the dog ate my homework. Oh, wait, yeah. the battery that's, was removed. That's yeah. pretty much, that's, that's their explanation for things in all of these cases. The dog ate my homework. And the, the American people accept it. And our so-called media accepts it. So it's a, and it, it, that's one thing. If it was just, you know, if it was just an anomaly here or there, okay, if that was the only anomaly here, okay. It's just, if everything else checks out. But when you have so many questions, yeah, you know, the early the or the uh, electronic transmitter. It was a you know there were lots of reports that this was uh, eliciting a, a signal from a particular spot in the water, and they just kind of ignored it. And they didn't start the search for hours and hours, even though Edward Kennedy himself had to call later on in the morning to try to hit you. You guys gonna look for this or what? And it's just there's so many questions there. You have the the reporter that we've still not been able to locate for the Martha's Vineyard Gazette, who is Steve Zabraka. That's why he's important. He wasn't working that day. For, he was off for WCV-TV, but when the story came on, he, I think it was with his child, he just stopped by the beach area, and uh, he didn't have much with him. I think he had a little note and pad, but he didn't have all this. Uh, he didn't have a cameraman or anything like that. So he went out and started doing investigative report firsthand on the scene, and he's the one that talked to this mysterious reporter who had, uh, his, again, his, uh, all the early reports, UPI, all these news services talked about a local reporter for the Martha's Vineyard Gazette, a very small little paper, who reported seeing an explosion in the sky at 9.39 p.m., the exact same time in the exact same area where JFK's plane supposedly went down. Now, that guy is important because we can't find him. Uh, uh, John DiNardo, another early reporter on the Internet, because, again, the real re professional reporters weren't doing their jobs. So people like John DiNardo, John Hankey, John Quinn, these are the people that did great early work and uh, were very helpful to me later in getting the basis for, you know, all these doubts. But he tried to contact the newspaper, and they told him the guy had gone back to college. They wouldn't, he could, they, it was impossible to give him their name. He wouldn't, couldn't talk to him. Well, Steve Zabraka talked to this guy, and he told me in an email he would swear in court that the guy existed. And he described him as an older guy with salt and pepper hair. So this clearly wasn't going back to college. And uh, he, he and uh, when I contacted the paper, I talked. To, I I mean, I uh, traded emails with the editor now, and she claimed not to even remember anything about the story. Didn't know what I was talking about. And this again, this is a tiny little newspaper. Probably serves that community of Martha. This had to be the biggest story the biggest in the story history of their entire <laughs> yeah. career. And she doesn't. And she said she was she was there at the time. I said, so what can you do? And I when I kind of questioned her again, she stopped the. Uh, replying to me but that's that's what happens when you investigate these stories and eventually you become like me where you're so cynical about it all because you know there's a pattern there's yes. a pattern over and over it's not an anomaly okay you get one bad report or you get one whatever they're all the same and it's it's very frustrating and it leads you to the point where i am where i don't trust anyone you know and uh, i don't trust anyone or anything that comes out of uh, out of the mainstream media no. And as we've learned with the calls for war, you know, after 9-11, going after Saddam Hussein, who had nothing to do with 9-11, right. the mushroom cloud, you know, that right, right. and which the media just went full throttle on and sure. um, the rush to war, they became more of a cheerleader for that. But yeah. the the idea that, um, yeah, I think that a lot of people, you're right in saying that the majority of, of Americans, especially, they think that if they tune into CNN or MSNBC or whatever, ABC or Fox, whatever, that they're getting um, 
that they're getting real news and it may have a bias, you know, it might, might have a, a, an angle, but that they're at least getting the news, they're getting information. But that's why also um, I'm happy to, to say that there's a, a growing number of people that um, the veil has been lifted, so to speak. They know, they know that there's no way this, these, all these things could happen and they're questioning. And that is why the explosion of podcast, you know, people can actually search out information instead of just turn the television on and being fed these lies. They're seeking out programs like this and um, other programs that you've been on seeking out that information in large numbers. So I'm very hopeful on that front um, that there is a a large uh, movement of people that are waking up. Well, I I mean, I am too. I mean, certainly when we saw it, I think the first one of the incidents I've ever seen uh, where there was widespread doubt to put it mildly, uh, even among the mainstream media, now they may have been playing a game, was with the recent uh, death or whatever happened to Jeffrey Epstein. But when that happened, I don't think there's a person in, in America that believed that he killed himself. But, I mean, you know, you have people on the left, uh, you know, blaming Trump. You have people on the right blaming Clinton because he had connections everywhere. And But uh, I, th- I thought it was a little encouraging that there at least was a skepticism about it. But we've already seen that the, the, the authorities have already come out and said he killed. You know, I mean, you, you've seen the cell and saw there was nothing there to hang himself. Well, it's ridiculous. Where's the security footage? He was beat up before by the, uh, the, the guy, the ex-cop murderer who was his roommate. But then they claimed, no, he actually attempted suicide. It's like, you know, the story, and this is what happens in all these cases, the narrative changes. And people, there's no reporters there to say, wait a minute, you just said this, you said that. Yeah. They don't catch the contradictions. And so they're allowed to just change these stories, wildly change them. I mean, you, know, you go back to something like the death of Vince Foster that I've written about where most people don't know. Uh, you know, the story goes that he was fo- found on the ground, on the ground in Fort Marcy Park in Washington, D- outside of Washington, D.C. There's a Secret Service memo that describes an early, that right after he was found, describes his body being found in his car. Now that changes everything about the crime scene. There's no reporter outside of someone like me or writers like me that even question that. Talk to the Secret Service people that wrote that memo. If they're that incompetent to mistake the ground of a park right. for the car, <laughs> then, and, and that's, you see that stuff all the time. And, and so this is why it, things like this, the, the narrative becomes important. He tried to kill himself. He was on suicide watch. And then when people started questioning that, well, no, actually he'd been taken off suicide watch. Like, wh- wh- where's the security footage? You know, where's the, the most, camera footage? The, the most highly watched and, and, yeah. and talked about person <laughs> of the day. Yeah. Yes. And um, the security cameras just happened to not be working, just like on 9-11 with the yeah. security. Oh, it just well, didn't. You they know, don't work anywhere. I mean, I talked to Scott Forbes, who, who worked in the Twin Towers. It was, it was, uh, he wasn't there on that day, September 11th, because he was, had just happened to be off that day, fortunately for him. But he talked about he tried to go to the, uh, Port, Authority, the Port Authority. He tried to go to the NYPD. And then he tried to go to the 9-11 Commission because he and his, his surviving people could testify. They had been there for a very long time that there were all these bizarre power outages and strange things happening in their area of the building right in the time leading up to the 9-11. He thought that might be significant. Not only did they not want to hear from him, the 9-11 Commission just outright said rumors about there being power outages and so forth uh, have have proven to be unfounded. 
Now, this is a guy who was this one time. You talk to the people that were there. Imagine how they feel when the government investigation <laughs> says, well, no, they were mistaken. They experienced it firsthand. You know, pay no attention to what you, you know, to your lying eyes. Listen to me. And so that's why all these things are so important. That's why that story on Fox News from JFK Jr.'s pal, you know, talking about, and this is something I know personally from talking to people, that this is a subject, he apparently the only Kennedy member, really, that was, uh, until now with Bobby Jr. Is, has come out and, and started getting much bolder now recently and talked about the assassinations. But uh, Caroline certainly doesn't, and no other Kennedy ever has. So behind the scenes, JFK Jr. had a quest to find out this was a subject that not only, you know, his buddy from the History Channel notwithstanding, not only did he uh, mind it being talked about, but apparently it was maybe his most favorite topic of conversation behind the scenes. So when you hear that and you know these things and to hear the lies perpetuated by this state-run media we have, it's very frustrating because we, we have to break through that and have free media. And we have it on the Internet on shows like this. But unfortunately, with the censorship that's coming uh, to play on YouTube and, uh, and social media, they've already deplatformed mainly right-wing people. But as I said at the time with Alex Jones, you know, this guy was a big name in the so-called world of conspiracy, regardless of what you think of him. If they can take him down, and they took him down, there are lots of smaller people they can take down just as well. And, you know, you have to stand up for, as a civil libertarian, I got that from Mark Lane. You know, I defend uh, everyone's uh, right to say what, even though if I disagree with it, and I will always do that, but there are no civil libertarians left. Everybody wants to lock up people and get them fired for things that they say that offend them. And that's, that's not uh, freedom of speech. And that's why we don't have any free press, because it's all been politicized. Well, and that's the, the power, again, of, of programs like this, and especially when people listen to it and it's resonating with them. And if it's either they're getting goosebumps or they're like, yep, I know it. I, every single thing that you're saying, I agree with. And I'm so happy that somebody is actually speaking it. The importance of people to share that as much as they can and while it's available, because probably wherever this is shown um, or put up, there'll be, uh, you know, what are they, those fact checker things, you know. Oh. <laughs> AFK <laughs> Jr. was just, it was a plane accident, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You know, the, the, the resident historian of the, of the History Channel tells you, I mean, come on, you're, who are you going to believe? I mean, the, the people that knew him or the resident historian of the History Channel? I mean, it's, it's, it's laughable. And, and that's, you know, it, it's unfortunate because, you know, even YouTube, a big thing like that, used to be a really freewheeling place. And whenever any of these uh, things happen, like, say, the death of Epstein or even uh, the shootings in El Paso and Ohio, which have already been forgotten largely, you know, they, they get forgotten so quickly and they move on to the next one. And the inconsistencies get lost in the shuffle. And you always used to be able to go to YouTube, a big platform, and you could find tons of videos produced a lot of times by people in their parents' basements. But they were doing real investigative work. I mean, some of them were kooky, but some of them were really good investigative journalism. And they asked the questions, you know, whether it's Sandy Hook, Boston bombing, any of these things that no one else was asking. And I, I missed that because I tried to, to check after the, the shootings and uh, there was almost nothing there because they've really clamped down on it and they instantly direct all searches to your horrible mainstream news, you know, that, right. you know, that you're not going to get any questioning there whatsoever. Right, going to to directly to CNN, and and it is it has been the citizen journalists too that have been on the ground, maybe in and not in particular in in 1999 in Martha's Vineyard, that you know in that area, um, 
the, the, the local media you can't necessarily rely on, but there are citizens that will take it upon themselves and go, this just doesn't make sense. And they'll do their own research and digging. And we need to, we do need to foster the importance of keeping that um, alive for people. If not, then we will be just one, one channel, one state run, you know, access point of information and really then your true democracy is is done at that point and you know and so of course and well long before the internet you know back in and long before i was active politically uh when the first books started appearing that were critical of the warren commission it wasn't there were none by any professional journalists the professional journalists of the day the you know the scotty restons and tom wickers and the new york times and so forth and walter cronkites and dan rathers who got to start lying about that as a local reporter in dallas you know talked about the president's head going forward after he watches the pruder film and things like that that's how he got his start they none of them did an investigative reporting they backed the warren commission to the hilt it was left to people like mark lane who was a you know a civil libertarian and 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 a New York assemblyman at one time and a lawyer who rushed to judgment. He had to go to uh, Great Britain. He couldn't get it published in the United States first. He had to go to England to get it published. Uh, you had people like uh, Sylvia Marr, who was uh, a, a, just a worker for the World Health Organization, and she wrote Accessories After the Fact, which is still probably the best compendium of information. Still holds up well from the, the mid '60s. And she also, most people don't realize that that the this was done so purposely and so heavy-handed. The Warren report was an 888-page set of conclusions. It was basically a prosecutorial brief against Oswald, a huge biography of Oswald, largely fanciful, full of crazy stuff like, you know, uh, Oswald's Ru- uh, Jack Ruby's mother's dental charts. Like Mark Lane pointed out early on, you know, that wouldn't have been uh, significant even if Jack Ruby had bitten Oswald to death. Right. You know, that kind of thing. Oswald's right. pubic hairs, things like thick pictures of that crazy stuff that had nothing to do with it. They padded the record with 26 volumes of hearings and exhibits. Now, nobody cared about most of the exhibits because they were largely meaningless as the ones I described. But the testimony was important even though they failed to call a lot of the most important witnesses and they called laughable witnesses that, you know, like for instance, they spent like 20 some pages talking to a woman who had known someone who had babysat the infant Lee Harvey Oswald. She was called as a witness to these, but they couldn't call George Admiral George Berkeley, the president's uh, uh, private physician who was a recipient of all the medical evidence was in the motorcade, was at Parkland Hospital, at Bethesda, everywhere. He should have been one of the first witnesses. They didn't call a lot of the close witnesses uh, to the assassination. They, they didn't do anything they were supposed to do, and no journalist called them on it. And those 26 volumes weren't read by journalists. They read the, the, the set of conclusions. And uh, it was left to people like Sylvia Marr, Harold Weisberg, who was a former OSS officer who had retired and become a chicken farmer. Another one of my heroes. And he, he couldn't get any of his work published either. He had to self-publish. His wife, I met him in the early 80s, and he was very old, very cranky guy, but really a brilliant man. He, he spent the last 20 years of his life going, and that's how I met him. I picked him up in D.C. and drove him back to his farm in Maryland just because I wanted to meet him. And uh, he couldn't drive. And he would go into to D.C. every day, take the bus or a cab or something, to file Freedom of Information Act lawsuits against the government that didn't want to release them. I mean, that was a real profile and courage. People like that, these were the people that uh, Shirley Martin, who was a housewife in Dallas, who did a lot of the investigation to begin with that real reporters wouldn't do. And of course, they were smeared. Uh, There was a a book written by Lawrence Schiller, who's still active, 
uh, he, he got involved with the John Bonet case and so forth. He's just been a sensationalist tabloid guy forever. He co-wrote a book with a, a New York Times reporter, of course, called The Scavengers and Critics of the Warren Report, where they took all these people to task and they made fun of them. I think that, you know, Sylvia Marr was apparently a practicing witch, you know, so that discredited her to them. You know, it, it didn't well, matter. What you her have reason. to have the hit team. You, yeah, exactly. And that's what they did. Yeah. It was Penn Jones Jr., who was a little newspaper editor, a very small newspaper, and who was the first one to tabulate all the mysterious deaths in the JFK assassination. He was smeared as, you know, as a drunk and so forth. And, you know, this, this is what you get because so we had to depend on people like that. Uh, without that, you wouldn't have had the 80-some percent or whatever in most polls, at least for a long time, of the American people that believe there was a conspiracy and don't think Oswald did it. If you if they just listened to the mainstream media, you know, it'd be 100% that believed it. So that's why it's so important. They did the work of the Internet. If the Internet had been back then, there would probably be even more information. But now we have the Internet. And so things like the JFK Jr. assassination, until my book came along, Hidden History, where I... I had a chapter devoted to it, and I've had a lot of people saying, you should write a whole book about it. Well, I don't know, maybe, who knows, someday. But uh, that hadn't appeared in, in, in at least this side of the story that really examines the evidence critically and how flawed the official story is. That hadn't appeared anywhere except on the Internet. And uh, so and that's, that's sad that even in that time, the publishing industry, and this is someone who's been published. I'm fortunate enough to have a publisher or two publishers now. But uh, it's harder, and there are fewer people that read books, too. It, it's harder to get, like, if the, if the people were writing about the JFK assassination today, they probably would not be able to get the kind of publishers that some of them had. Some of them had small publishers or self-publishers, but they would probably have to go to the Internet as well. So we need to keep the Internet free. We need to keep it free. We need to keep it vibrant. And we need to also encourage um, young people too to have that those critical thinking faculties a, as well, and not just uh, sip the Kool Aid, so to speak. You you had mentioned um, you mentioned your book Hidden History and the uh, the chapter on uh, JF Kennedy JF Kennedy Jr. is chapter seven. But um, and we have just a few minutes left in the show. But I wanted to give people an idea of a few of the other uh, stories that you cover in Hidden History so that they can go out and get your book so they can support you and, <laughs> and support an independent journalist and, and the work that you do. So what are some other um, areas that you cover in Hidden History? Well, Hidden History is basically a, a timeline of my life of being, not that I was politically aware at the time of the Kennedy assassination, but I, it starts with the JFK assassination. It's basically the 50 years after that. Donald Trump's name, I don't think even appears in the books. That shows how much it's changed in a few years that he hadn't arrived on the scene yet. Now you can't talk about anything without mentioning him, but it goes up through the Obama administration. And I, I, I talk a lot. I have a big section on obviously, the JFK assassination gets the most play. And I talk about the connections between the JFK assassination, the RFK assassination, the MLK. I talk about the, uh, the fake radicals on both sides and how our intelligence agencies infiltrated uh, groups like the Black Panthers and the KKK and how involved they were in, in you know, people like Timothy Leary and uh, Gloria Steinem both being connected to the CIA, things like that. And uh, all the way through, you know, I talk, I don't, I don't spend that much time on Watergate because I think Watergate was kind of boring compared to most of these things. Right. Actually, you know, and uh, I talk about the House Select Committee on Assassinations and the, their failure to their job. And I go up through, you know, big Oklahoma City bombing, I have a lot on that, a lot on Waco, a lot on Ruby Ridge, which is getting some uh, play now because it's the anniversary of Ruby Ridge. Uh, and uh, all, especially on 9-11 and all the way through the Obama scandals. And I talk about the body counts that 
uh, Clinton body count, I go into that in depth. Uh, both Bush body counts, Reagan had a body count, uh, Obama had a body count. And uh, so the, these, these kind of things, I mean, if, if you're left or right, I've had people uh, as far left as Cindy Sheehan, the international peace activist is a fan. I know she wrote Cindy, a blurb. Yeah. yeah, she wrote a blurb, Cynthia McKinney. Well, oh, become yes. close to she's she's one and she, her and I are like on a par. I mean, she's my favorite politician. She loves my work. Very uh, brave. She's a yeah, very but brave on, lady. On on the right, Roger Stone loved it and wrote the forward to the paperback version. <laughs> Jerome Corsi loved it. So uh, Lou Rockwell loves it. And uh, now my new book that I have is basically a prequel to this because it's, it, I wanted to call it Hidden History to the prequel, but we the publisher wanted to go with Crimes and Cover-ups in American Politics, 1776, 1963. Uh, the history they didn't teach you in school, and that basically covers a lot on Lincoln, a lot on the Lincoln assassination. Oh, really? A lot, yes, a, a lot on uh, Allied war crimes that covered up. A lot on the senselessness of World War One. A lot about General Pearl Harbor. Hitler. Yes, Pearl Harbor, the false flag of Pearl Harbor. Going back Vietnam. to Vietnam. Oh yeah, well the, the, these false flags go back to 1898. You know, remember the Maine and yes, uh, right. you know, 1917, 19, uh, the sink of the Louisiana. Louisiana it got us into World War One, and of course Pearl Harbor, and of course it goes all the way through to the Gulf of Tonkin and uh, the weapons of mass destruction. I mean, we're still being sold these things, and the American people, unfortunately, continue to fall for them. But I, I think that it's important to read these books because you read e even the new one, which is about older history. You realize why, how we reached the position we're in, because there's so many disastrous things that happened. And as you mentioned earlier about history, that's the kind of the subtext of this book. We just always remember history is written by the victors. Well, unfortunately, the wrong people in our country have won pretty much for a very long time, and they're writing the history. And they, I call them the court historians, and they're the ones that defend these uh, these really nonsensical narratives and distort the truth, and they make uh, villains into heroes many times, and they make heroes genuine heroes into villains also and it's it's uh it's it's very it's sad to read it because if you don't know your history as santayana said you're condemned to repeat it and yes. uh unfortunately you know when, when when the victors write the history you're going to get their version of things and uh that's what we have is there and the, these court historians serve the same purpose that the mainstream journalists do today in terms of current events they just uh you know rewrite history and you know we're almost at the point where you know we're, we're like uh Winston Smith was in 1984, where he worked for the minutes where, you know, he just, okay, well, they've always been our enemy. They've always been our friend, you know, and just start throwing things down the memory hole. And that's, well, that's where we're at. It's that and, and Stockholm syndrome where we start yes. to just go, okay, it's another, but when people realize, and in, in particular about like with the Vietnam war and the Gulf of Tonkin, you know, it was 40 years later. And I think it was uh, McNamara publicly like on camera said, yeah. look, we made a mistake. It didn't happen. <laughs> right. So you're, so you're telling me hundreds of thousands of American um, men and, and women and their families completely devastated, killed, uh, disabled for the rest of their lives, post-traumatic syndrome because the shit that they had to do and we were exposed right. to. So all, all of that did not have to happen because you guys just made a mistake, which is baloney. Yeah. You knew exactly what you were doing. And then 4 million Vietnamese that had to die all of the devastation with Agent Orange and, and all of yeah. that death, 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 death. These are real lives. And that's why these shows are important is because, and the books that like folks that you write, why I encourage people to, to get these books is because if you do not know how they're lying to you, 
the next emergency, urgent war, call to action, draft, it's either going to be putting you and your ch- or your children in line and all you got to do is go by a, a VA cemetery and you see thousands and thousands and thousands of those crosses and, the, and, and the, you realize what a waste of human life, what a waste of energy, all the pain and the sufferings that, that these, you know, Smedley Butler said it, right? War is a racket. War is a racket, right. There's some people that are making a hell of a lot of money and power on Absolutely. these wars and they Boy, I, happen. I have a lot about Smedley Butler in the book and he's, he's one of my favorite heroes. And yeah. he, yeah. He, he, he had a great saying where he said, war is never about uh, enemies. It's always about opportunities for profit. And he talks about all the fortunes that were made in World War One. And he's, he was also friends with my, one of my, my favorite political heroes, still Huey Long. And I hope I, in another one of my books called Survival of the Richest, which is more about economics and about the disparity of wealth, it's a little bit different. But I have a whole chapter about Huey Long in there. And I've had tons, I get so much feedback on Huey Long in that because people don't realize how great he was and what a conspiracy his assassination was to stop him. And how this, this guy, most people don't know, when Huey Long was going to be running for president and they assassinated him because of that, he predicted his assassination on the floor of the Senate. Still in the minutes, he talked about how they were plotting to kill him, and they did. And <laughs> still, you can go out and read it. And no other, I don't think any of the senators ever done that. But he had the audacity to write a book called My First Days in the White House, which ended up being published posthumously because they killed him. His mythical Secretary of War, because they weren't in Secretary of Defense then, was General Smedley Butler. So you know there would have been no war under Huey Long, and General Smedley Butler's career ended with Huey Long's assassination. I have the quotes. I, I was uh, able to form a uh, friendship with Huey Long's great-granddaughter, who's still trying to do his work, and she didn't, wasn't even aware of the connection between him and Smedley Butler. I said, look, I've got it right out here. Smedley Butler said that th- the greatest honor of my life was being named as his secretary of war in that book. Oh, and my, and wow. my, whole, my whole reason to be in political life ended with Huey Long's assassination. So these are the sad things that happen, and of course, you know, it, we, we see it today where voices for peace are always stifled. Uh, you, someone like Tulsi Gabbard, who is, I, I'm not completely sold on, but certainly the best of that lot. And uh, she's being frozen out of the Democratic Party debates because uh, even though she wins all the internet debates, looks like Ron Paul did, because she's constantly talking about our uh, ending the war, not to mention auditing the Fed and you know uh, GMO products and supporting Julian Assange, which none of the others are. And no, she's too real. She's too yeah, real yeah, and she's yeah. too honest and they're not going to let that happen. It's the oh. same when back in the day when Bernie was, you know, again, the majority of people wanted Bernie, but they shoved Hillary, you know, yes. yep. and, and they stole it, you know. Yes, but again, yes I think with people, here's the thing, like a lot of time when you see what's going on in uh, Hong Kong, when you see what's going on in France, if yes. you start messing with the French and their vacation, they're in the streets. <laughs> Yeah, thousands of them are in the streets. What does that say about America? Do you, you know one of the other reasons that the French were donning their yellow jackets? They were incensed that they might raise the retirement age to sixty-two. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be seventy here soon in America. Oh, it's going to be eighty, <laughs> or never. You know, never. You're never getting your money back. You're going to raise it, and they call it entitlements. And if I hear one more politician say entitlement for my social security, I'm going to, I'm going to scream. Oh my gosh, Donald Jeffries, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on. And we can talk, I would love to have you back on another time. Anytime. I feel like we could just take even just one chapter out of, out of your books and just do a whole show on it. So I would love to have you back. Sure. Absolutely. I'd love to be back.
And why don't you let uh, our listeners know uh, how they can find out more about you and how they can get your books. Well, I write, I, I have a blog called Keeping It Unreal. I also had a novel published in 2007 called The Unreal. So I kind of named it after that. I rant and rave there regularly, but if, if you can figure out what I am after, other than a populist, because I'm all over the place. I'm far left most of the time. Sometimes I'm far right. But I write about things there, and I get a lot of good feedback from there. So it's, it's donaldjeffries.wordpress.com. Again, my books are out there, Hidden History, Survival of the Richest, the new one, Crimes and Cover-Ups in American Politics, 1776-1963. I have a book on bullying called Bullyocracy that's coming out early next year. Oh, I definitely want to have you. Um, I want to have you back for that. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, and you know, we we can uh, discuss survival of the richest. Just survival of the richest. Uh, they're supposed to have a paperback coming out at some point soon from uh, with a forward by Naomi Wolf, who has also become a fan. I love, I, I love, love her. her. Yeah. Well, she's. I just. I'm very grateful that I was able. I've been interviewed by her, and uh, we've talked and we communicate. So. Uh, wonderful uh, looking forward to that and uh, so yeah we can talk about anything I, I'm very easy to find you google me I have lots of interviews out there you google Donald Jeffries and author Donald Jeffries you'll, you'll find lots of stuff that hopefully will be of interest and also we'll make sure that with accompanying this uh, podcast show we'll have links to the the blog and also uh, listings of the different books that you've written so people can That'd please do folks uh, and not just to support somebody who's doing a really incredibly brave job and is being the historian that we need, but also um, to educate yourself on, on what's happening. Again, if not, they'll keep repeating. They're going to keep doing the same stuff over and over again until we all become well-educated. And that hundredth monkey, right? That, that, yeah. that tipping point when, yeah. when, when there's one monkey on the island, the hundredth monkey reaches it, and then they go, oh, you break the <laughs> coconut like this, and then it's an in, innate within us. So yes. I want to thank you again, Donald Jeffries, and I want to thank you wonderful listeners for tuning in this week. Remember, you can share this podcast easily on YouTube. It's great because you can easily share it on your social media. I encourage that. And uh, until next time, I want to remind you to always think outside of that damn box. Bye for now. Thank you.